All right, Emily, thank you. got the buzzing going a little bit, Derek. Oh, just got better. There we go. Can you guys hear me okay? Good evening. Somebody was here called Zoom user. Who is Zoom user? Kevin? <laughs> That's a funny name. Yeah. Zoom yeah, I thought it was original. No, my name <laughs> fell off for some reason. <laughs> fell off. That's good. That's very appropriate for tonight. So I just want to make a small request, those of you that don't have photos on your uh, Zoom account, if you could please put some interesting photo on so that those of us that meditate watching the screen can have something interesting to look at. And then I'd like to ask Liz and Alan, both of you have like the same picture. Can one of you volunteer to change them? Sort of just kidding. Anyway, we should start with a chant. Oh, is it letting you share? Hold on, I have to make you co-host. Okay. Should be able to share now. Yeah, there we go. Thank you for letting me share. I'd like to share something this evening with all of you in order that all sentient beings may attain for the hurt from my heart. Timothy Jewel. In order that all sentient beings may attain for the hurt from my heart. I say that to Timothy Jewel. In order that all sentient beings may attain to the whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all aspects from the paths of all nations, may be derived from the clear mirror of intellect. Only Jesus has accomplished this. So it's good to start with the prayer to your patron saint, right? And Jesus. Okay, so tonight we're uh, diving in to this book, Luminous uh, Heart, translated by Carl Brunholzo with an awesome introduction and great notes and a wonderful collection of texts by the third karma class. And, uh, Is anyone else having a little trouble hearing? Yes. sort of going in and out. Yes, I have trouble hearing. How's that? That better? Yeah. Oh, I had it totally screwed up. Earlier, um, 
it's some people said it was okay so i kept going anyway thank you for letting me know that i get to start over i'll actually go backwards from where i left off <laughs> um hey tonight so we're do, doing this uh, background of uh yogacara buddhism the indian yogacara background and uh there's there's the following part. I thought I would say a few uh, general words first for a change, which I rarely do, and then we'll dive into the text in that. Um, he'll be talking about the following things, and maybe this will help. He's going to talk first about where Yogacara sits in the, in the scheme of the different uh, so-called schools or traditions of Indian Buddhism in the development of the uh, philosophical outlook of the, of Buddhism that developed in India. And uh, he's mo mostly going to compare it to uh, the Madhyamaka tradition, or Madhyam Madhyamaka, but I, I think uh, Madhyamaka sounds nicer, so I'm going to stick with it, even though the other is probably more correct. Sort of like you know, the real way to pronounce Shambhala is Shambhala. But Rimshay didn't want it to be called that way. So he stuck with Shambhala. Anyway, so Madhyamaka, uh, whatever it is, the empty one. <laughs> um, so we'll go into that whole trajectory. And then he's going to go through a litany of teachers and texts, which is uh, probably not going to be that relevant, so I'm going to uh, skip over a lot of that, and he has a little summary of it at the end of that section. And then he's going to dive into uh, what is the nature of mind, and what is mind only, and uh, sort of, uh, it's somewhat from a defensive stance of like, it's been misunderstood. I've been misunderstood. <laughs> and uh, sort of presenting the true version of Yogacara. And then in that, he's going to go through the stages of meditation in the, in the Buddhist system in general that are sort of uh, explained in, more, in a sort of more cohesive way in this tradition than in most traditions. Certainly the Madhyamaka tradition does not get into a lot of detail on the the meditative experience. So I think that's it. And uh, and remember, as you as we go through this idea of mind only, this this I wanted to suggest is that um, Take a quick look on 19. He quotes from this guy, Bruce Hall. Hall, the Hall, further commented to the window as follows. And drop down to, this, to the end of the second paragraph, like the few sentences back. The intention here is not to reduce the material to the mental, 
but to deny the dichotomy, while affirming that the basic reality is more usefully discussed in the terms belonging to a correct understanding of the mental, or that which is mental. Right, so that's the sort of overriding point. Derek, um, can you... Harriet, your hair looks amazing tonight. <laughs> it's uncontrollable. <laughs> it looks different. It looks huge. Yeah, I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's my screen, but wow. That's cool. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> page 19, can you give me a, a reference for the digital version? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there's a section called Mind Only. So it's uh, one, it's like five paragraphs in on that. All right. So the second, in this quote from uh, Hall, further comments on this as follows, the end of that second paragraph that began within negative terms. Right? So... He's saying that uh, the intention here is not to reduce the, the material to the mental. And that's what we usually think when we think of mind only. Everything is, is mind and so there's no matter and it's just mind. But to uh, deny the dichotomy of mind and matter while affirming that the basic reality is more usefully discussed in terms belonging to a correct understanding of the mental, of the mind world. So skillful means is using this whole terminology of mind only, right? Okay, cool. Um, and then think, particularly those of you who have kids, how would you uh, explain mind only to your children? Or maybe if you teach kids but don't have your own, but you know, how would you explain mind only to children? And then think about uh, letting go of, like, uh, those of us who are sophisticated in the world of Buddhist philosophy sort of have this, I think, ingrained reaction that, well, mind only is a little, you know, it's not as superior, it's not as cool as emptiness, Madhyamaka. And there's a little bit of a preconception there. So see if you can drop that and just, like, try understanding or accepting or or realizing that everything is mind. And just like, what would happen if you seriously knew that? Isn't that, wait, hold on, Derek, isn't that like super damaging to children, depending <laughs> on their age? Seriously. <laughs> and, and so uh, that reaction, right, that's super damaging to children because... The, there's like this ingrained response to if everything is mind only, then things are going to get screwed up. And it's like, and it, it implies that you shouldn't care about anything, right? Oh, it's well, only mind, right? Well, yeah, given, given that sentence that you just read before that you were highlighting, when, we, when you're saying that we, you want us to try to take this view fully, which is a great idea, I love it, but are we taking it not from the kind of ordinary, but are we trying to take it from that point of view, that from that sentence that you just read, 
which is yeah. not, yes, yes, not totally. I mean, or that it's denying a dichotomy, but it's not sort of saying totally. No. Yes, is that what you were saying, Caitlin? Also, no, I was. I was more saying that like the kids are trying to figure out themselves in the right, first place. right, right. Like it's it's very. Right. And and we all should be continuing to do that all the time, but we've given up. As we get old, we give up. We think we know who we are. It'd be better if we were still trying to figure out who we are. And uh, and we think that if everything's a dream, it's going to get fuzzy. Uh, if everything's mind, it's going to be like a dream where everything's fuzzy and uncontrollable. But if um, if we let go of that preconception that if everything is mind things are going to get weird and instead uh, realize that with mindfulness things are, are going to be more precise and more clear and more workable and more understandable it's right. going to be like the world is in slow motion and you're going through it and so you have a greater ability to function in it Caitlin is there such a thing as like too young then to like honestly like open oh. their eyes in this capacity or like to even discuss this type of thing with little tiny people that don't even acknowledge? I mean, I don't know. They don't have a sense of self, but like they kind of. I agree with you. I agree with you that that little kids is too young for. So you guys, I have no idea. I have no kids. I you deal with. Work out. I deal with triplets. My grandsons are. And uh, there's three of them, and they meditate. And they, we talk about it's about the mind, and they don't get all confused. How old? How old are they? Nine. Mm. Okay. And, you know, so you guys. I mean, you guys I'm not so sure as they really understand. I don't mean that they really understand, but they don't have much trouble. They they know from meditation that that's what they're doing it's hmm. where they go isn't that the age in like tibet when they start teaching them meditation usually is like eight or nine i i have a recollection of eight in my mind yeah from, well i don't like know number these kids are really into it i mean they when grandpa comes around well that's what they want to do they even have an, a lego toy that has a, a meditation chamber there's a meditation chamber awesome. in this uh, awesome. uh, Lego toy. That's and there's a cool. little head in there. That, and there's these things. Are, <laughs> That's so cool. It, it really is. And, and they're not freaked out about it. I mean, I don't know why they have, you are considering that it's a bad thing. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe they, I don't know. Okay. Thank you for that. Sorry. I didn't mean to carry this on wow that's profound yeah Derek, I like that yes sir could you say something more about the statement you made that, that given this view everything becomes more precise and more clear well I said maybe <laughs> that was my hunch that was like you know we always think it's going to go uh, things are going to go out of control but I mean Aren't you know enlightened people more together theoretically, like the Buddha? And but does, he that understood. Have, does that have anything to do with the specific view, or are we talking about just you know mindfulness and meditation in general? 
having that effect? No, it's the combination. It's the combination. It's the combination of being in that state of mind while being extremely grounded in terms of shamatha and vipassana. The state of mind being that everything is mind? Well, let's read through it. Oh, so the last introductory thing is to say that um, I, I, I started to say this and uh, didn't complete it when I talked about how we generally have a uh, uh, preconception that Madhyamaka is more ultimate. And so I want you to, uh, what is it called, suspend preconceptions, something like that? Disbelief. Willing suspension of disbelief. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. And see if you can maybe see it the other, uh, you can accept that it might not be that way and it might be a different way. And and that your understanding of, this is the main thing, is that your understanding of mind only might not be correct. And so you want to look into some some different way of looking at mind only. Last Last one, Kevin. Yeah, I was just going to say, maybe we need to suspend judgment because I think a lot of times we have that view that Madhyamaka is superior. Just in our tendency to judge things. I think so. I, I certainly have that. I, I feel that. Anyway, <laughs> so let's dive in. So an introduction. So we can't go through the whole thing in detail as uh, usual. So it forces me to try to pick and choose and summarize, which is what I'm really terrible at. So um, let's start on page four. Wait, I'm sorry, page three. In certain parts of East, of the Eastern as well as the Western academic traditions, the Yogacara school has often been neglected or misrepresented, usually in favor of assigning the pole position. That's a terrible thing to do to somebody, the pole position among Buddhist schools and to Madhyamaka. In particular, it's Prasangika brand. <laughs> it's talking about like marketing of different brands of like Dharma. Um, there are many reasons for this, but two of the main ones are, one, making superficial and out-of-context judgments based on a unidimensional understanding and discussion of what seem to be stereotypical buzzwords, such as chitta-mantra, and two, not treating the con concepts and explanations of Yogacara in their own terms, but looking at them through the lenses of other philosophical systems. Right? So every philosophical system uses the pro, uses uh, another philosophical system as its springboard to achieve a sort of leap in the the in the in the mind and understanding that can shift us out of the cognitive uh, bind of conceptuality of thinking things are a certain way right <clears throat> so that all the different schools are doing that in a progressive way and um there's there's an interesting tidbit about the history of Buddhism where there's an um, there's an evolution in the presentation of the Dharma that goes from one set of teachers and texts and thoughts and so forth to another over over time in the historical record and then there's also the uh, the structuring of those into a into a hierarchy. Um, and try to like compare them to 
uh, the turnings of the wheel of the Buddha or the um, the stages of uh, of understanding. Uh, no, sorry, I'm sorry. The uh, concepts of either definitive or interpretive reality. When we talk about the third reliance, always rely on the definitive meaning and not the interpretable. And um, there's one idea that the teachings of the Buddha evolved, the presentation of them evolved from his existence and after his uh, disappearance from this world, the Pari Nirvana, there was then a period of Buddhism that uh, taught, presented, and practiced the teachings that are in the Nikayas, that are preserved in the Nikayas of the of the Tripitaka of the Theravadan school, this, uh, as it appears in like Sri Lanka and Thailand and so forth, and um, they they represent the first shift in philosophical outlook that tries to make make you uh, pull the rug out onto your conceptual fabrication and experience an open mind about things, and then there's. Um, the different Abhidharma traditions develop and get very complicated. And um, and Nagarjuna, the, the, the Abhidharma systems develop along that the basis of that first shift, which is that um, everything is made up of little parts, little aspects of reality called dharmas. is the first major shift in Buddhism. Where fir first, you know, like you sort of guy off the street or person off the street thing is like, oh yeah, things are, there's things, there's uh, units, phenomena come in units, and then the, the shift that the Buddha presents is that all of those units are um, made up of infinite parts called dharmas. And then we have Nagarjuna comes along around 150 or so of the common era, and he like says, all of those things, they have no self-nature, nothing that makes them what they are. So all of your little charts and categories of dharmas, you're just like uh, painting on space, drawing on space, right? And produces a big shift for them. And then after that come a sangha, Maitreya and a sangha, and then Vasubandhu. And they start to put out all of this other material writings and teachings and the question is did their presentation of the dharma go backward and make it dumb it down for people easier to handle the sort of stomach oh we're sorry Nagarjuna he was just like so radical we gotta like tone it down step it back a little bit and make it palatable for people or were they going uh, progressing further right and, you know, after them, then we have Dignaga and Kirti, the logical way of looking at reality. And then we have the Tantras, the Vajrayana presentation. So in some sense, there seems to be an evolution towards a greater and greater presentation. I, I glossed over and didn't really describe the transition from uh, the... Uh, the larger characterization of the first stage is Hinayana, so-called to Mahayana. Mahayana was a big development, like 
um, women can get enlightened, lay holders can get enlightened, you know, all sorts of radical things for that time period. And then Vajrayana, you know, just goes a huge step further in terms of just being an ordinary person and being able to get enlightened. Cynthia. Just one question. When you were describing the, the question of whether they were going forward or throwing things backward, is it possible that it could be neither of those two in that as opposed to progressing further, is there a way in which it could be sort of parallel, but different, sort of different or, you know, different, but equivalent. Yeah. Illuminating different aspects, but not necessarily progressing further as just highlighting different aspects of experience or something. That's definitely possible, right? There's like an elephant in the room and different different people experience different parts of it. You know, the famous analogy of the the blind, 12 blind people checking out an elephant. They each have a very different story about what it is. Just because otherwise, into the, still we get into the who's better, you know, who's at the top of the peak. <laughs> so then the... Uh, um, one one major clarification that comes back is there there's a difference between uh, Yogacara and Chittamatra. And uh, the presentation of a Sangha and uh, Maitreya Sangha and Vasubandhu and uh, their commentators down the years that through the years that eventually comes to somebody like Rangjung Dorje is that their explanation of the nature of things is not only different, but also more complete. And uh, they affiliate that understanding with uh, the presentation of the three Dharma wheels of the, of the Buddha, the three teachings or turnings of the Buddha, where the third one, um, the description of it in a famous sutra, describes it in, in most ways exactly as the second turning. But it says, and thirdly, it explains things in, uh, it explains the true nature of things in, in great detail and in, in very extensively. On page four in the bottom, Lusthaus says, Buddhism is, is not a psychologism or psychologism, whatever that is. I'm not even going to ask anyone what that is. Even I though actually the, looked it up if you want to tell Okay, that's quick. Uh, it's a tendency to interpret events or arguments in subjective terms or to exaggerate the relevance of psychological factors. Neat. I've never been guilty of that. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> uh, even Yogacara, which does propose to reduce karma and the entirety of the triple world to cognitive factors, is not a psychologism. How's that? Is that better? Close? Psychologism? Jojism. Psychologism. Uh, psych Thank you. <laughs> this is because the point of Buddhist analysis is not the reification of a mental structure or theory of mind, but it's erasure. What? what? It's erasure? Did I read that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's not the reification of a mental structure or a theory of mind, but it's erasure. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> That's pretty cool, okay? 
Uh, Vasubandhu highlights the closure of cognitive horizons. It's a new brand of cottage cheese, cognitive horizons. Not because such a closure is either desirable or unalterable, but because the closure can only be opened once its all-encompassing complexity and ubiquity is understood and recognized. Does that make any sense? Vasubana highlights the closure of cognitive horizons, not because such a closure is either desirable or unalterable, but because the closure can only be opened once its all-encompassing complexity and ubiquity is understood and recognized. That's a little elusive. Anyway, Yogacara uses psychological arguments to overcome psychological closure, not to embrace it. How's that? That one made sense, right? And then on uh, page 5, the, the quote there, As a Mahayana school, the Yogacara developed as a response to the insights of those same Prajnaparamita sutras, as did the Madhyamaka school, was based on the uh, Prajnaparamita sutras under such circumstances, it would have been difficult indeed to have ignored the centrality of the notion of Shunyata to these texts. In fact, the idea that the early classical Yogacara of Asanga and Vasubandhu found any difficulty whatsoever in embracing the basic insights of the Madhyamaka school disregards both the historical and textual evidence, which on the contrary displays the spirit of underlying continuity and acceptance. What he's sort of responding to is there's a predilection in the in the tradition to say that the Yogacharans were, uh, were not versed, well-versed in uh, emptiness in Madhyamaka and uh, Prajnaparamita Shunyata. Uh, so, so then uh, this this full paragraph by uh, Ron Holtzel, and then I think we'll go on. That's the chat. Sorry. Uh, however, so the following paragraph. In contrast to the Madhyamaka's reluctance to speak about the specifics of seeming reality and the Buddha's path of purifying the deluded mind. So this is Ron Holtzel trying to sum it up and. Um, in contrast to the Madhyamaka's reluctance to speak about the specifics of seeming reality. So in Madhyamaka, there's very little lip service paid to the relative truth. The focus is on the ultimate truth. Rhea, welcome. All right. <laughs> so we're on, we're on page. Do you have the hard copy or digital? Hard copy. We're on five. Are you? Yeah, you're there. Cool. Excellent. Um, and the Buddha's path of purifying the deluded mind, they don't, they don't go in detail in Madhyamaka about like, what's the path? What are the stages? What are the techniques of doing this? Everything's just ultimate emptiness. Um, the Yogacara system, besides presenting sophisticated analyses of ultimate reality, also elaborates on how, how the deluded mind operates and how it can make the transition to the unmistaken wisdom that sees this mind's own nature 
and what the characteristics and the fruition of this wisdom are. Thus the Yogachar not only investigates the definitive meaning of the scriptures in a non-reifying manner, emptiness, but also what happens experientially in the minds of those who study and practice. This, at the same time, it provides broader contextualizing comments in the sutras and addresses typical misconceptions about emptiness in Madhyamaka, such as it being pure nihilism, which was a very common concern even among Buddhists since the time of the Garjana. Consequently, one could even argue Yogacara's system is not only not inferior to the Madhyamaka approach, but exhibits a much more encompassing outlook on human experience and the soteriological issues, which I believe means liberative issues of the Buddhist path, than the almost exclusively one-way deconstructive approach of the Madhyamakas. They're like a broken record. It's just like over and over again. Emptiness. Emptiness. And uh, this seems to have occurred already to some people in India as the following verse attributed to the audience. This is a funny sentence, by the way. The following verse was attributed to an audience not a person, an audience. So it's a quote in a text that records a debate, and it's in that text it's attributed to the audience of a seven-year debate. They debated for seven years. Chandra Goman and Chandra Kirti. Who do you think won, by the way, between Chandra Goman and Chandra Kirti? Chandra Kirti is famous. We all know him because he wrote the introduction to the Middle Way, which is probably the most famous book on emptiness after Nagarjuna is the cortex of the shader. So the winner is Chandra, Chandra Goman. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. He does, I want to read does his he book. Say, yeah, yeah. I think that's great. Ah, uh, the treatises of Nomal Nagarjuna are medicine of some, for some, and poison for others. The treatises of Ajita, which is an epithet of Maitreya, the next Buddha, and Noble Asanga are nectar for everybody. Okay, so you see that, you sort of see two things. One is like they're defending the Yogacara, so clearly they're coming from this place. And, and, and it's possible that those of us who are not that well-versed in typical Western scholarship or Galupa philosophical treatises might not even have this overhanging baggage of thinking, you know, Yogacara is a silly inferior system. And he's presenting it as a step beyond. So there's an incrementalness to Yogacara in comparison to um, Madhyamaka. So let's skip ahead to He also says that the whole Yogacara tradition uh, lays the groundwork for the what we call Buddhist psychology and understanding the nature of mind. Not in a in the in the Abhidharma we have the understanding of the elements of mind, the mental factors in extreme detail, and the way those interact. What are called conditional relations. And uh, but in the um, they don't really talk about the types of minds, the subjects of those objects, 
the experiential, different ways of experiencing the different types of cognition, which is what the Yogacharya tradition talks about and, and how those impact the perceiver in terms of the whole conceptual framework of our cognitive experience. So on page seven at the last paragraph there, in sum, the Yogacara tradition considered itself as a continuation of all the preceding developments in Buddhism and not as a radical departure for them or even a distinct new school per se. To retain what was regarded as useful in other schools of Buddhism, um, but not mean to be ignorant of the pervasive Madhyamaka, cautions against reification of any kind. Uh, let's see. I, I didn't read that right. To retain what was regarded as useful in other schools of Buddhism did not mean to be ignorant of the Madhyamaka cautions against reification. Thus, the vast range of Yogacara writing represents a digest of virtually everything that previous Buddhist masters had developed, including intricate Abhidharma analyses, charting the grounds of the many levels of the path in the three yanas, subtle descriptions of meditative processes, presentations of epistemology and reasoning, explorations of mind and its functions in both its ignorant and enlightened modes, and commentaries on major Mahayana sutras. Thus, any linear or one-dimensional presentation of this Buddhist school seems not only misguided but highly inconsiderate <laughs> and rude, downright rude, due to the rich uh, variety of this school's sources and explanatory models. In itself, this variety and its development are nice examples of key yogacara notions which usually describe processes rather than states or things, which is the predilection of the Abhidharma tradition the latter, that is. Nevertheless, a brief overview in the Yogacara school's own terms of the main topics addressed in the following text by the Third Karma is indispensable to demonstrate how firmly he is steeped in the view and explanations of this school. Okay, so the major Yogacara masters and their works. Uh, so I'm going to do, we'll do a few of these and then skip. Let's begin with the Indian masters in roughly chronological order. Um, he gives this is sort of an amazing rundown of all the teachers and texts, which is uh, to me an amazing feat that he pulled all this together because I've, I've never seen anyone do this in this uh, detail and breadth. Um, so uh, the Indian masters in roughly chronological order and their major texts that are at the core of the Yogacara tradition. And uh, let's see, first and foremost is Maitreya and his five seminal works. So, you know, it's like, what's the, why do I need to know, you know, the names of all these books? You know, there's only a few of them, but they're still helpful to know, like the five, dar a few of them, the five dharmas of Maitreya, these five texts, Abhisamaya, Lamkara. The first one is a condensation of all the Prajnaparamita sutras in this amazing, like, uh, code language. They're all in verse also, and uh, of like 30 pages. And then Mahayana Sutra Alamkara is, is this condensation of all these Mahayana sutras that have appeared over the last like 300 years, written, you know, somewhere like in around 250 or 300. And so uh, quotes from them and sort of uh, summaries of them. Madhyanta Vibhaga is like a, a new version of Abhidharma sort of text. 
Dharma Dharma Tava Bhanga presents the true nature of reality versus the untrue nature of reality focuses on that and there's a commentary on that in this book that we'll hopefully get to and then the Ratna Gotrava Bhaga more popularly known as the Uttara Tantra presents in detail the idea of Buddha nature and so these are the uh, main seminal texts Derek? of the Yogacara tradition yes sir uh, so like they're these are all translated I'm guessing they currently are, you know, and it's amazing that they are because they, they haven't reached, they haven't for a long time. It's a very recent phenomena that these are now available. Have you read some or all? Or I've read Abhisamaya Lankara. Mahayana Sutram Lankara, I have not read. I, I'm just um, kind of wondering if one was to pick one, you know, I mean. Oh, Andreas, yeah, pick, pick, pick the Dharma Dharma Tava Banga. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There's a translation by Jim Scott and Kempo Soldrum that I recommend. But um, Derek, but Derek, actually, we'll go through it in this in this class. We'll go through oh. the commentary on it in this Excellent. book by Rangjan Dorje. And because the text is short, it's in another book by Brunholzel. And so I'll provide that as a PDF if I remember. I'm sorry, cool. uh, Emily. I just wanted to jump in that note 23 on the Uttara Tantra was an interesting one because it talks about how some uh, scholars seem to not like including anything about Buddha nature within Yogacara. Um, So that was an interesting one that stood out to me. Neat. Is there part of it you can read? Uh, Let's see. Certain Western and Japanese scholars attempt to draw a sharp distinction between the Yogacara tradition and any scriptures on Buddha nature such as the Uttara Tantra, even speaking of different schools. Um, I mean, it's quite a long one. <laughs> okay, that's good. But, but uh, so the the interesting thing that happens with the Uttara Tantra is it gets lost for like five, six hundred years, like a long time. So nobody talks about it much for a lo- for quite a long time. So that that footnote about those guys... Um, complaining in that way, uh, separating out Buddha nature tradition in that way is is uh, sort of common to the whole tradition. There's this uh, these Buddha nature sutras that appear, but they like they're not correlated to Yogacara particularly. Mm-hmm. And, and all yes, sir. Um, somewhere I think it's in um, our our study materials at Nalanda Bodhi. Um, Carl divides Yogacara into four stages. Mm. And he says that the Buddha nature teachings only came in at the fourth stage. That's great. Thank you. So that, so that would, you know, correspond to the idea that it was lost and then rediscovered. Yeah, I lost and now I am found. Amazing grace. My uh, Maitripa finds it in a buried in a. Uh, a uh, column in a in a shrine room. Hmm. He's he sees light. He's in the shrine room late one night. It's getting dark, and he sees light emitting from a column in the shrine room, somewhere in northern India. And he breaks it open, and there's a text of the Uttara Tantra. That's a cool one. So it's a Teraton treasure discovery. It's sort of like Joseph Smith, though, right? You know. <laughs> 
except he didn't Ooh. lose. He yeah. didn't lose half of them. <laughs> okay. I'm reporting you. <laughs> so you got these five texts that are that are the sort of core key uh, texts of the tradition, and um, and then skip Nagamitra, then a song in Vasubandhu. Uh, were the two earliest commentators on these five texts and composed many texts of their own, and he lists those that are attributed to the Sangha. And you'll see, like, commentaries on uh, sutras, Samdhinar Mochana Sutra commentary, Ratna Gocha Vibhaga on uh, Maitreya's texts, and then, you know, to the extent that these names mean anything to you, you can read through them. But those are the main ones. And then he goes through listing everybody who's anybody else on a few for a few number of pages and I, actually i should point out under vasubandhu there's a couple of really famous texts the fifth one is the uh, vimshadika karika is uh, the presentation in 20 verses and the trimshika is in 30 verses so they called their texts the 20 and 30 verses. They weren't even exactly 20 or 30, by the way. They rounded it off. and But those those are the most famous. We'll see Carl quotes from those. And let's go through all the way to uh, 12. And if you read through this, you'll see that it's like a commentary on... A, uh, Maitreya's text, a commentary on a Sangha's text, or Vasubandhu's, or some sutras. That's basically the main theme. Um, let's see, on the very bottom of, of 12, the second to last paragraph, or second full one, in brief, the main classical Indian exponents of Yogacara are no doubt Maitreya, Asanga, Vasubandhu, and Stiramati. Actually, I skipped over Stiramati. He gets he gets not not nearly enough respect I was wondering about that. I noticed. <laughs> yeah, you noticed that. That's good. Bottom nine. Yeah, let's go back to the bottom of nine. Stiramati, 510 to 70, so he lived only 60 years. It's, I can do my math still. Is often unduly ignored, but he's, he not only composed important commentaries on several of the above texts by Maitreya, Song, and Vasubandha, but also systematized and elaborated many classical Yogacara themes, especially his large commentaries on Maitreya's uh, Mahayana Sutra Lamkara and Madhyantava Bhanga, as well as the shorter one of Vasubandhu's Trimshika, can be considered as landmarks in its own right, in their own right. And those are his works. Yeah, so... Um, and then he was a teacher of Prasenajit on the next page. Anyway, uh, so... Uh, and Stiramati, back on page 12 on that bottom section. Those of you who are digital, we're like, uh, we're two pages away from the end of this section on the teachers, the major Yogacara masters and their works. As will be seen in the following, it's also primarily their works that provide the roadmap for the discussions of the eight consciousnesses. So that's that's the scheme of the Yogacara that there's an Alia Vijnana consciousness. And just uh, to make sure everybody's clear, in the earlier traditions of Buddhism, such as Madhyamaka, Sautrantika, and Vasubha, uh, uh, Vaibhashika, Vaibhashika, 
uh, the Abhidharma traditions, there is no Aliya Vijnana. There's only six consciousnesses. So the Yogacara tradition adds the eighth consciousness, the storehouse, Aliya Vijnana, and then the ego mind, the uh, Klishta Manas, the mind of Klesha, the, the main Klesha being me, Derek Klesha. Uh, the four wisdoms. The four wisdoms is the precursor to the five Buddha wisdoms. And uh, the three kayas, the three bodies of the Buddha, the Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. The idea that the Buddha manifests in different ways, sort of different cosmic ways, and Buddha nature in the third Karmapas text translated below. In terms of contents, its contents, it should be noted that the Yogacara system is by by no means some kind of speculative philosophy that starts from a priori axioms and then constructs a magnificent edifice of abstract concepts in order to define what is true. On the contrary, the Yogacara school proceeds from observing and analyzing a wide range of meditative experiences, hence its name, which reveal uh, so it's named Yoga Chara. The Chara means to like bring about or to make happen. So to do yoga, let's do yoga. The let's do yoga school, uh, which reveal both the diluted and non-diluted processes of the mind through exploring and outlining the perceptual and conceptual structures of such processes. The Yoga Chara system works out primarily their epistemological way of understanding, uh, language and communication, and soteriological liberative implications, and only secondary, their ontological status. See, Madhyamakas dwell primarily on the ontological status of phenomena of the world, of reality. And the Uvacharas were like, that's that aspect has already been decided, we know that. Now let's work on you know the other stuff that's still there, even though we think we know that everything's empty. As common in the Buddhist tradition, many Indian spiritual traditions in general, Yogacara treats epistemological analysis, a purely philosophical discipline for Western minds, as inseparable from and being most relevant for soteriological concerns. In other words, the delusion about a truly existent self and phenomenon and its resultant suffering are basically taken to be a cognitive error, while liberation of Buddhahood is nothing but the removal of the error, erasing the error. Okay, so let's skip to 14. The following on the top is a brief outline of some of the main Yogacara notions and pedagogic templates that are employed toward the end of terminating minds, toward the end goal of terminating Minds, self-delusion, and revealing its true nature. The world is merely mind's own play. One of the most inclusive notions in Buddhism in general, and Yogacara in particular, is Vikalpa, with its related uh, things or terms, Kalpana, Parikalpa, and their cognates. Cognates means they're sort of linguistic uh, relatives. All of them have the basic sense of constructing or forming or manufacturing or inventing on a conceptual level, of course, right? So, uh, is, uh, Vikalpa is like conceptual mind or conceptuality, as is Parikalpa. Parikalpa is like imagination. Kalpana is uh, 
basically another word for uh, conception. Thus, in terms of mind, they mean creating the mind, forming in the imagination, and even assuming to be real. So creating in the mind is vikalpa. That's, he's translating vikalpa as that. Forming in the imagination is peri, the, the third one. Why does he do that in different order? I guess he's not correlating them, but forming in the imagination is, is really what perikalpa is, and assuming to be real is kalpana. This shows that their usual translation as thought or concept is not wrong, but particularly in a Yogacara context, far too na narrow. Fundamentally, this is to be kept in mind throughout the Buddhist text. The these terms refer to the continuous constructive yet deluded activity of the mind that never tires of producing all kinds of dualistic appearances and experiences, thus literally building its own world. So a lot of reference to this aspect of the mind of like creating the sense of things being a certain way, of things appearing a certain way. So Madhyamaka focused on emptiness and Yogacara is focused on appearance. So why do the things appear? Why does everything appear in this way that it does? And what am I? What is my mistake cognitively that's resulting in that? Either believe, at least believing in that projection or appearance, and maybe creating it too. Um. I'm going to skip this whole part on false imagination because I think we're going to come back to it later. And let's jump into the mind only. Well, actually, towards the end of this section, so on the bottom of 16, and for you digital folk, it's the last paragraph before the section called mind only. Sometimes the opposite of false imagination, correct imagination, is also presented. So false imagination is another way of contextualizing this constant reificatory cognitive activity of the, uh, the mind, just to use his sort of terminology. And then correct imagination. What happens when, like, we uh, construct a framework that works, so to speak? is also presented. The latter refers to the mind being engaged in cultivating the antidotes for false imagination, i.e. the path. Correct imagination refers to that on the Buddhist path. So correct imagination refers to increasingly more refined but still more or less dualistic mental processes or creations that serve as the remedies for respectively coarser kinds of mental I'm sorry, obscuring mental creations, perceptions, and misconceptions, all of which are called false imagination. So then we have a description of how this happens over the stages of the path, which is sort of interesting. Initially on the paths of accumulation and preparation, the first two paths, uh, such remedial activities are conceptual in a rather obvious way. So everything's conceptual up to the path of seeing. 
such as meditating on the repulsiveness of the body as an antidote against desire, which is the, the most traditional uh, sort of ter uh, Theravadan style of meditation in the early days of Theravada, um, or cultivating bodhicitta through contemplating the kindness of one's parents and so on. So this is the typical Mahayana approach of antidotes, uh, bodhicitta. More subtle approaches would include familiarizing with the mo with momentary impermanence or personal phenomenal identitylessness. So in the abs Abhidharma tradition, uh, he's saying that focusing on the decomposition of a, of the body into a skeleton is sort of a gross or outer or beginning level meditation practice, and the more subtle or advanced meditative practice is. Uh, familiarizing with momentary impermanence as opposed to um, general impermanence, understanding that the idea of impermanence, when understood fully, leads to the idea that, that things are radically momentary impermanent. There is no abiding. There's nothing that abides. If things are changing over time, then they have to be changing constantly all the time completely and there's no one part that doesn't change while there's some anyway um, and then uh, other subtle approaches like in the in the Theravada tradition is personal identity you know uh, egolessness and then in the Mahayana is uh, Dharma emptiness of Dharmas from the path of seeing onward all coarse conceptions of ordinary sentient beings even the remedial ones have ceased so the idea of practicing antidotes dissolves as well. However, during the first seven boomies, there are still subtle concepts about true reality on the last three boomies about attaining the final fruition of Buddhahood. <laughs> so this is this refined version of the path that, that the seven first boomies of the Bodhisattva are not as cool as the last three, as if that's a problem for us today. <laughs> So, oh my God! Got to get first through those first seven. But the the hang up on the last three is is some sort of idea that there is Buddhahood, I guess. In other words, though, though phenomena are not taken as real anymore after the path of seeing or first Bhumi, um, sorry, I lost my place. On the first seven boomies, there's still the apprehending of characteristics, and on the last three, there is still a subtle tendency of duality. In brief, since the remedial wisdom that consumes what is to be relinquished still depends on what it relinquishes. <laughs> i got to have something to relinquish. Yes? Um, I've always been puzzled by this notion that you can understand or see that phenomena have no true existence, but you're still hung up on their characteristics. Yeah, isn't that amazing? That I don't, it, how, did, how does that work? I don't get that. It's like a habitual pattern. It's like the momentum of of your your psychological makeup, your DNA, just like is structured. You know, the way that our senses. Uh, on the one hand, we say that our senses are non-conceptual but they're diluted they they actually interpret things as if there's a perceiver and are perceived and that's our physical makeup our dna and and it's like ingrained in us through aeons over time as as relative sentient beings 
And Could you give an example of how it says, in other words, though phenomena are not taken as real anymore, there's still the ap- apprehending of characteristics. Could you give an example of that? Yeah, like there's the characteristic of uh, there being a, a, a sentient being who's the recipient of my generosity. And there's an act of generosity. And I need to cultivate generosity. That's that's a fixation on the characteristics. Well, if phenomena aren't taken as real, is that sentient being? That sentient being is not taken as real. Right, right? but it still but it still appears as a separate as an identifiable entity. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not taken to be real, I can identify my mind automatically labels it still. Mm. That's that seems to be what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They talk about the habitual pattern hangover of it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. in in post meditation. Yeah. In in uh, equ- meditative equipose, there's no difference mm-hmm. theoretically between a first Bhumi Bodhisattva and a tenth. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. Uh, let's see. Since the remedial wisdom that consumes what is to be relinquished still depends on what it relinquishes, so it's like an activity as if it has something to do, and uh, still entails subtle reference points with regard to the Dharma Dhatu, it must eventually naturally subside too. Um, once even its most subtle fuel, the apprehending of characteristics and dualities burned up. The, the main thing that's uh, overcome is the apprehension of something, there being an apprehender and an apprehended. Uh, He uses this example of a stained shirt and skipping that. I think we can skip the rest of this. Okay, so what is mind only? Good, and we we have a good amount of time to talk about mind only. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Who's making a bunch of noise? There we go. <laughs> okay. Uh, everything being mind's imagination leads to the most well-known, but almost also most un- misunderstood notions of the Yogacara: Chitta Matra or Vijnapti Matra. Chitta is is uh, um, uh, mental only, chitta, um, and and uh, chitta is like when we when we talk about the the dhatus, like the eighteen dhatus, where you have six sense bases: eye, ear, nose, tongue, uh, body, and they have objects, color and fo- and shape for eyes odors for noses and sounds for ears and so forth. The sixth uh, in that scheme, 6, 12, and 18, are the mind, the uh, objects of mind, and the consciousness that comes about between them. And in that situation, the sixth one, the term in Sanskrit is chitta. So that's mind. And it's similar to sem in Tibetan, if that means anything or is helpful. Vijnapti is more like conception or consciousness or um, 
cog cognition only. Very often it's still said that these terms mean that outer objects do not exist and everything is only mind, with mind being the only thing that really or ultimately exists. However, when looking at what the Yogacara texts themselves say, this is a gross misrepresentation. So, the beginning of Vasubandhu's Vimshatika Karika, no, Vritti, Vimshatika Vritti, his commentary on the Vimshatika Karika says, in the Mahayana, the three realms are presented as being mere cognizance. So that's how he's translating Vijnapti, Carl, cognizance only. The sutras say, and he's quoting uh, the Lankavatara Sutra. He doesn't really give a footnote, does he? But that's this is in the Lankavatara Sutra. Oh, sons of the victor, all three realms are my mind. Here the word mind has the sense of being associated with mental things. <laughs> Carl, but it's, you know, one of the interesting things in this is that uh, there's a lot of, Carl does a lot of insertion of additional words to clarify things, but he's very clear on what he's adding. Some translators don't do that. They expand on the literal wording of things in order to translate it and make it understandable without really showing where they add terms. And Carl is very good about showing where he's added terms. So you can say, uh, read it without his additions. Here, the word mind has the sense of being associated with, and there's no identification of the object. But there's an implication that being associated with, of course, means being associated with something he's saying, of mind being associated with its mental factors. And that's the usual scheme, is that mind is associated or appears or functions or manifests or exists through its mental factors, through being conscious, through being uh, angry, sad, tired, whatever. Mir has the meaning of excluding reference. Right, so we've seen in the Madhyamaka system, we've seen, or in the emptiness texts, we've seen this word mere appearance, this term mere appearance. And so, uh, in this context, Carls explains that the mere in mind only means without reference, excluding reference. What are reference? Reference are the those little stuff that build up on your teeth. You got to. No, that's enamel, right? Reference are are the objects of conceptual of terms, right? So when you talk about this book, like the book, and you say this, I'm holding up the book. What's the referent? Well, the referent is that thing you're holding up, isn't the book? The book has a referent, which is the object. Yeah, yeah, it's the book. <laughs> And, it's what you're and, but, referring to. Yeah, that's right. When when am I referring to it? When, when you, you say speak. book. When I say book, not when I hold it up, right? When you think book, even. When you even when you think even when you dream book. Right. <laughs> okay, so that's you know we sort of draw, drew. <laughs> I dream about books. You're right. Um, we sort of drew that out a little bit, you know, sort of a bit. But 
we don't quite real. I think we don't quite realize the extent to which we do that, of mixing up the reference for the term, and the, and the sort of uh, impact that that has on our psychological makeup or experience of our world or, or life. Don't the foundational schools really point that out a lot? Spend a lot of time with going over that, right? Going over what? Say again. Going over that aspect of, uh, you know, reference and objects and mind. You know, they they take that apart. What's a rep? You know, how the mind works. No. Uh, what's the difference? What's the difference, though? What do you, difference? What do you mean, difference? In the way the earlier schools presented, and as opposed to the way this school is. Oh well, they they the realists. They they say that certain things are real. That, What's real? That um, you know, uh, the specifically characterized phenomena versus generally characterized phenomena. You're using different terminology. Use yeah, terminology. I'm mixing it up. All right. You're mixing metaphors. Is that they have parts? Who's the, what's the they? Give, give me the term we've just been using. Um, the reference, you mean? The reference, yeah. yeah. That the reference that, has parts. That the reference have, that they have rights also. <laughs> the earlier schools believe that the reference have equal rights to the referrers. And the, the, and, yeah, the reference are real. They're real. They're yeah, real. exactly. Everything external. There's real external phenomena, and when we talk about a book, there's actually a book out there. Instead of um, this school is pointing out that we never actually know the the book. We have no way of knowing if there's really anything out there beyond our conceptual structure, because all we ever experience is our conceptual structure, and so there. There effectively is no thing that's beyond our conceptual structure. <laughs> if we, if there was something beyond our conceptual structure and we bumped into it, what would happen? <laughs> a, a referent walked into a bar. Never mind. Okay. You, you get to go to another universe. <laughs> Immediately, without passing go. Okay, I'll skip the quote. Like many other Yogacara texts, Vasubandhu's indeed continues by denying the existence of material outer objects, but the full purpose of teaching Chitra Matra is much vaster, realizing phenomenal identityless. So he's presenting that teaching uh, mind only as a way of understanding um, Shunyata complete emptiness of, of dharmas. Moreover, in this process, mere mind itself is no exception in being entitylessness. And this is the big gripe that the Madhyamakas have, is that they say that the, uh, the Chittamatrans hold on to the mind as being in some way truly existent. And those are sort of key terms when I said in some way, that's sort of a key thing, because they don't charge the Chittamatrans with thinking that they uh, that it is real in the same way as the dharmas were real for the abhidharmists, but uh, that they still cling to it as having some some status of being there in some way. Um, so let's see. 
How about let's let's go through this quote by uh, Vasu Bandhu, and then we'll sort of skip to the stages of realization. Uh, let's see. So, how does the teaching on mere cognizance serve as the entrance to phenomenal identitylessness? That's sort of the crux of, of the issue, right? So he's commenting on verse 10 of his own text. That's in about 20 verses. It is to be understood that mere cognizance makes the appearances of form and so on arise, but that there is no phenomena whatsoever that has the characteristic of form and so on, which is sort of what we just talked about, that the mind creates the book, the conceptual object book, and um, but there is no phenomena whatsoever that has the characteristic of book. Uh, then he quotes, but if there is no phenomena in any respect at all, then also mere cognizance does not exist. So how can it be presented as such? So he's saying, and this is one of the interesting things about this tradition, is that it says, if, if everything that's experienced is not really there, then how can you say that the experience is real? And um, because you're experiencing, right? Exactly. We we tend to think of it as like watching a movie, where we go to the movies, you know, the lights dim, and you're eating your popcorn, hopefully, and you get totally sucked into the movie. You get identified with the movie and uh, the emotions and the characters, but all the while you know it's not real. And um, this is different. This is like being in a dream and thinking that it's real while you're in there, but we know, but knowing afterwards that it's not real, if that makes any sense. That, that difference in way of viewing things that I'm trying to describe. When, you, when you're watching me, the movie, you know you're real. You know you as the viewer. Right, the perceiver, yeah, you're sitting there watching. Yeah, but, but they're saying that if there's nothing to watch, if there's no, if there's no object of watching, there can't be a watcher either. Right, right, because you're in it. It's not you're not outside of the movie. You're yeah. in it, so it's more like in a dream where there's all this stuff going on. And if you wake up in the dream, you know that none of it is real. And and how can there be how can there be a you that's really there? You're you're dreaming. There's no dreamer, and there's no dream. Yeah, you're dreaming. Okay. Anyway, um, entering into Phenomenal entitylessness. That's such a funny term. It makes it sound like identitylessness is really phenomenal. It's really an amazing thing, which I guess it is, but uh, it does not mean that there is no phenomenon in any respect at all. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Suspense. It refers to the identitylessness in the sense of an imaginary identity. That is, a nature of phenomena as imagined by childish beings, which is the imaginary nature consisting of fictional identities such as apprehender and apprehended. 
the the dualistic structure of of experience the presumption of that the constant all-pervading presumption of that is the main structuring force in the whole uh, situation of this world of the world of reality and the main uh, mistake the main flaw the mental flaw and this is what's overcome on the second of the five paths of preparation uh, but it is not meant in the sense of the non-existence of the inexpressible identity that is the object of the Buddhas. Did he just put something forward as real? Is there a footnote on that? Yeah. What do you it's, got, Emily? Oh, Cynthia, who? It's Henrietta. Oh, Henrietta, cool. For the supreme self that is the lack of self, in quotes, realized by the Buddhas. That's a mouthful, huh? The supreme self. The supreme self. What does that sound like, a supreme self? Sounds like a self to me. <laughs> but it's not. It's the lack of self. It's a, that Buddhist contradictory stuff. Damn you, Buddhists. God, how can it be both not a self and a, and a self? That's Is that a non-implicative negation? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like an, an implicative negation. Okay, so there's 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 a subtle implication of something there, right? Okay. Um, likewise, one enters into the identitylessness of this very mere cognizance as well, in the sense of it lacking any identity imagined by yet another cognizance. It is for this reason that through the presentation of mere cognizance, one enters into the identitylessness of all phenomena, but not through the complete denial of their relative existence. So he's explaining the deliberative, uh, um, skillful means of this approach. Also, otherwise, mere cognizance would be the referent of another cognizance. And thus, a state of mere cognizance would not be established since it still has a referent. <laughs> so, um, could you translate that? Yeah, let's see. It is for this reason that through through the presentation of mere cognizance, one enters into emptiness of phenomena, uh, but not through their complete denial of their relative existence. Also, otherwise, mere cognizance would be the referent of another cognizance, and thus the state of mere cognizance would not be established. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck he's saying there. <laughs> I'll think about it. Let's all sleep on it and it reminds me of it reminds me of that uh, Orson Welles movie where there's the hall of mirrors, you know, all <laughs> right. it's not the mirror thing that as soon as you Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Let's skip at, <laughs> at some point yes. you're you confront the corporeal, right? And that, confront I think that's what? 
corporeal, the body, the, body, the, the, re- the body. this is real, you know. So there's all this going on in your conception in your mind. But at some point, I think it's just saying there's something there. That's all. That's what it says to me. But don't get caught up in the cognizant. I love the sound effects. That was good. <laughs> okay, so on the next page, <laughs> on the next page twenty, in the in the middle, there, Carl says, "Thus, that mere mind is being constantly referred to in yoga texts as the delusional perception of what does not exist." These more texts also use a lot of images of dreams and so forth. Hardly this. Uh, predilection to to um, constantly referring let's see mere mind is being constantly referred to in yogacara texts as the delusional perception of what does not exist and this hardly suggests that the momentary that those momentary mental activities exist in an ultimate or a real way I think he's saying the uh, the the lack of reality of the perceiver in in uh, mere mind or mind only no, not only does not reify itself but it also doesn't reify its its cognitive objects the mental fact mental activities. Anyway, Sorry, which, we will, which page are you on, Derek? Sorry, I lost my I'm page. A, I'm a, yeah, I'm on page 20. 20, okay. So this is, again, kind of refuting the critique of the Madhyamakas, right? That, right. The Madhyamakas saying, you've, per, you've put forward something. You've put forward the mind as being real. <clears throat> so he's continuing, continuing to try to assert that... Um, Mind only does not mean that mind actually exists. It would also then mean that the objects exist as well. But, uh, Derek? Yeah. Is he also saying somewhere that, he's kind of saying that the mental factors, I mean, he says, however, since this mind does not arise without the mental factors, these mental factors are not negated. That's in the quote. So I'm a little confused about these. It's it's uh, it's the same as when in the in the Madhyamaka system when they when they point out the true nature of reality as being completely of empty, completely empty of anything real. Mm-hmm. And then they say, but this does not deny appearances, mere appearances. Mm-hmm. And so in the mind-only system, they're saying, well, this mind is not real, but that does not negate uh, the mental f- mental factors, the mental experiences that happen in the mind. It's the mere appearance of mentation mm-hmm. is the equivalent in the Yogacara system to mere appearances in the Prasangika system where we say uh, nothing is real as it, 
uh, in a, a way of being uh, separate and truly existent on its own, but things still appear. And so they're saying nothing is, uh, the mind is not real either, which does not say that there aren't mental factors that merely appear. Which is essentially to say they're not denying our experience. Right, that's right. Mm -hmm. But they're they're undercutting the way we experience the reification process and the externalization process, the subject-object dual, duality, dualification. That's a good one. Dualification. So then the stages of experience. On the right-hand side of 21, from this uh, text by Maitreya, the Mahayana Sutra Alamkara, which is the... The ornament of Mahayana Sutras, understanding that reference are mere mental chatter. Bodhisattvas dwell in mere mind, appearing as mental chatter as these. Then they directly perceive the Dharma Dhatu. So, in, in, uh, instead of uh, instead of looking at mere reference, they see the true nature of reality, the Dharma Dhatu, the realm of Dharma. The, which is the realm of the emptiness of all dharmas, thus being free from the characteristic of duality. The mind is aware that nothing other than mind exists. Then it is realized that mind does not exist either. The intelligent ones are aware that both do not exist and abide in the dharmadhatu, in which these are absent. And so the commentary of Basha on these verses comments that once bodhisattvas realize that reference are nothing but mental chatter, they dwell in mere mind appearing as those reference mental chatter. This represents the four levels of the path of preparation, which is the second of the five paths. It comes after accumulation. And this path of preparation is where uh, Vipassana uh, gain strength, having been unified with Shamatha at the culmination of the path of accumulation. Vipassana then brings us through these four stages of understanding. Uh, subsequently, on the path of seeing bodhisattvas, and, and he'll describe them shortly, if I can, I'll find it, try to find it. Bodhisattvas directly perceive the Dharma Dhatu, free from the characteristic of the duality of apprehended, apprehender and apprehended. And their sequel, Apprehender 2. As for directly perceiving the Dharmadhatu, having realized that there is no apprehended object that is other than mind, bodhisattvas realize that mere mind does not exist either. So he's going over the same point over and over again that they say quite clearly that after saying that there's nothing other than mind, that mind also does not exist over and over again in many ways. So on the bottom, the above two verses from this Mahayana Sutra Lamkara represent one of the classic descriptions of the four yogic practices found in many Mahayana texts in general and Yogacara works. In particular, these four steps of realization are, and uh, you may realize some, some, compare, uh, some comparability between this and schemes that you've experienced before, at one, outer objects are observed to be nothing but mind. Two, thus outer objects are not observed as, as such. Three, with outer objects being unobserved, unobservable, a mind cognizing them is not observed either. And then four, 
or on the next page, not observing both non-duality is observed. Thus stages one through three, and, and thus the notion of chitta matra, mind only, are progressively dealt with on the bodhisattva path, only up through the end of the path of preparation. Stage four marks the path of seeing, the first bhumi on which the bodhisattvas have to let go of the notion of mind only as well. This progression is also clearly expressed in the compendium of Mahayana by Sangha, chapter 3, blah, 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 uh, specifically matching these four stages with the four stages on the path of preparation, which are temperature, heat, mountains, peak, um, let's see, uh, ready to go, poised readiness, and then the supreme mundane dharma. Here, too, the notion of chitta-mantra is to be relinquished. After this stage of poised readiness, the third stage, the destruction of the discriminating notion of mere cognizance of mind only, represents the samadhi that immediately precedes the path of seeing. This is to be regarded as the stage of the supreme mundane dharma, which is the, the name of the fourth stage of the stages of the path of preparation. They're sort of weird names. Heat is like warming up to the idea of uh, emptiness or the true nature of reality. Peak is like uh, going to the uh, uh, extremes of your conceptual understanding, the height of your conceptual understanding. And then poised readiness is like um, like being, uh, you're ready to jump off the mountain. You've got up to the, to the mountain peak and poised readiness it's like, okay, I'm ready to let go and jump off. And that supreme mundane dharma is like where, you know, you're in, in outer space. And the famous statement by Trungpa Rinpoche of, you know, you're falling through space a zillion miles a, a minute without a parachute, but there's no ground. It's sort of applicable. And... Um, Eric? Yes. When... when um... When it says that bodhisattvas dwell in mere mind appearing as reference, um, is that process of dwelling in that what is being described by these four steps? That was that was one through three, I think. Okay, so that's that's what it means to dwell in mere mind appearing as reference is to go through one through three. Right, and then to go okay. beyond that is four. Right, okay. Uh, let's see. And then he gives like a number of different references to this same scheme over and over again, and some of them are quite nice. So, the next one is good. The text also speaks about the ultimate purpose and function of the notion of mere cognizance. Why do bodhisattvas engage in mere cognizance or vijnapti mantra? The cognitions of non-conceptual and unmistaken, supermundane, calm-abiding, and superior insight Okay, so this one is a great description of the path. And so here we have 
uh, the cognitions, so the cognitive experiences that arise on the basis of uh, supermundane shamatha, calm abiding. So calm abiding that is beyond the world, that is oriented towards going beyond the world. So it's not focused on the jhana states, it's not focused on the absorption states, which is which is a way of achieving a higher existence in samsara by uh, virtue of sh uh, shifting to the form or formless realms. And then he says, before that, he says, non-conceptual and non-mistaken and unmistaken. This is an important uh, uh, adjectives or clarifications that um, it has to be both non-conceptual and unmistaken. Uh, often we think that non-conceptuality is, is everything, but there are non-conceptual states that are mistaken. And those are the sense perceptions. The sense perceptions are, are non-conceptual. They don't have a conceptual referent. Their referent is the actual object of the senses. But they're mistaken in that they have a fundamental, they're fundamentally flawed by the basic um, uh, presumption of duality. Okay, so has to be both non-conceptual and unmistaken shamatha and superior insight vipassana which focuses on all the miscellaneous dharmas it's sort of a funny term miscellaneous <laughs> it's not one of the more precise terms you find in the, the treatises <laughs> miscellaneous dharmas focusing on all the miscellaneous dharmas as opposed to like the non-miscellaneous ones that fall nicely into categories Anyway, um, all the miscellaneous dharmas in the Mahayana whose general characteristic is suchness. And, and this is like a really clunky way of saying that when your shamatha and vipassana focuses on the true nature of all dharmas as being suchness or emptiness, and the subsequently attained, so that's what happens in the, before that, which we just went through, is happens in meditation, and the subsequently attained is what happens after you have uh, that glimpse into reality. And it's it's often mistakenly affiliated with post-meditation. But subsequent attainment means like what happens in meditation as well after you have a realization of the true nature of reality. Subsequent to attainment. Non-conceptual cognition in terms of various kinds of cognizance it's sort of clunky sense, all the cognizance and cognition that realizes all phenomena to be nothing but imaginations of the duality of apprehender and apprehended. Um, so the whole four stages of the path of preparation are focused on undoing the apprehender and the apprehended in a in uh, in four stages, uh, sort of outer and then inner more subtle. Through these cognitions they relinquish all, relinquish all seeds and the alia consciousness. So um, by seeing these true natures of reality they empty out the alia vijnana. Together with their causes they, they uh, relinquish all the seeds, all the predispositions that are residing in our in our storehouse consciousness and their causes. What put them there? Um, and thus they increase the seeds of making contact with the Dharmakaya. 
fully enlightened, fully, uh, full enlightenment, cultivating the latent tendencies for listening of the Mahayana. This is an odd way of saying that they're uh, basically cultivating the experience of the true nature of reality. And finally, through undergoing the fundamental change of state. So the shifting of lineage, this is referring to this weird way that they refer to a change of status going from a sentient being to a non-sentient being. A, a, a sentient being who's deluded on the, the paths of accumulation and preparation and before to uh, a, a sentient being that is on the, the uh, stages of realization. A change of state, change of path, change of uh, status like uh, citizenship. They perf perfectly accomplish all the Buddha Dharmas and thus attain omniscient wisdom. And this is why they go through all that mirror stuff. And then uh, just briefly, a couple of the nice, shorter, poetic presentations. So starting on page, the bottom of page 23 in the Dharma Dharmatava Bhanga, we'll finish up with this guy, which is Maitreya's text. It's uh, translated as distinguishing. So the last term in, in the name, uh, Vibhaga, means separating or distinguishing. And it appears in a number of texts. There's... There's the Madhyanta Vibhaga, and Madhyanta has the same cognitive root as Madhyamaka, Madhya, the middle. And uh, it also has this word Anta, Madhya Anta, and Anta means the ends, the limits. So Vibhaga is discriminating the middle and extremes. What's, what are the extremes, positions of the uh, views of the nature reality, and what's the middle? And here we have that which distinguishes between the true nature of reality, dharma, and uh, dhar sorry, dharmata, and dharmas, the uh, relative reality. Through reference being observed in this way, they are observed as mere cognizance. So here, reference means all uh, appearances. By, by uh, experiencing appearances in this way as cognitive reference that don't have any external status, any independent status, by understanding all phenomena to be that way. And I, by the way, I forgot to mention that there's a correlation with the slogans of Atisha in, this, in the absolute bodhicitta slogans, numbers two through five. And the first one of those, i.e. number two, is regard all dharmas as dreams. And so a sangha is presenting the same fourfold scheme in the bodhicitta meditation slogans, regard all dharmas as dreams. So uh, regarding all phenomena as being mere reference or mere cognizance. And then on the next page, by virtue of observing them as mere cognizance, reference are not observed. So all I regard all dharmas as dreams. And through not observing reference, mere cognizance is not observed either. The, the perceiver, the mind, is not observed either. So then we have um, uh, something the uh, regard all dharmas as dreams. Rec what is it? Recognize the nature of unborn insight, something like that. 
that where it's it's sort of more like uh, recognize the nature of insight. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's sort of like recognize the nature of awareness as being unborn. So through not observing reference, mere cognizance is not observed. And through not observing this mere cognizance, one enters into the observation of both being without difference. This non-observation of a difference between these two is non-conceptual wisdom. And so that's, uh, there's not even an uh, antidote. It is without object and without observing since it is characterized by the non-observation of all characteristics. And then briefly, let's see, through the observation of it being merely mind, a noble object is not observed. Through not observing a noble object, mind is not observed either. Through not observing both, the dharmadhatu is seen or is observed. Through observing the dharmadhatu, mastery is observed. Having gained mastery through accomplishing the welfare of oneself and others, the wise attain unsurpassable enlightenment with its nature of the three kayas. And the, the next one is pretty much the same. For as long as consciousness does not dwell in mere cognizance, the after-effects of dualistic apprehension will not come to a halt. Samsara will not end of its own. But all this is mere cognizance refers to this observing also of the unceasing nature of, of samsara. Anything that is propped up in front of one's mind means not dwelling in merely that cognizance. The mistake. When consciousness itself does not observe any focal object, it rests in the very being of mere consciousness, since there is no apprehender without something apprehended. Then it is no mind and non-referential. Referential. It is super-mundane wisdom. This is the fundamental change of state and the relinquishment of the twofold impregnations of negative tendencies, the two veils to enlightenment. It is the uncontaminated Datu. Datu is realm. The uncontaminated realm. It's like, how do you refer to anything at that point? You know, so you have to come up with some words to, to uh, refer to that which is not there, <laughs> I guess. Uh, that is inconceivable, virtuous, stable, and blissful. This is controversial. So this is uh, this famous uh, summary or outrageous statement from the Mahayana version of the of the Parinirvana Sutra, the Sutra of the Buddha's passing into Parinirvana, where it says that there is a supreme self, and um, it's uh, permanent and not compounded and it's blissful. So here we have it's inconceivable, it's virtuous, stable, and blissful. The Vimukti Kaya. It's funny that he leaves it in Sanskrit. So that's uh, Kaya is like the three, as uh, in the three Kayas is the sort of form or embodiment or manifestation. And Vimukti is liberation. So it's just sort of like the liberation, the embodiment of liberation is blissful. It is inconceivable, it's virtuous, and it's stable. Uh, this is called the Dharmakaya of the Great Sage.
There's a lot of sage out west, isn't there? Any final comments, suggestions, questions, concerns? That was well said. We should all go home and meditate on that. Yeah, try, try like giving it a chance. Try, you know, like just shifting and see like, well, what if there is no actual reference to my, my cognitive experiences? You know, we understand yeah. the, the, the yeah, difference yeah. between the concept of book and the book. We, we say there's these three things. There's my conceptualizer, my concept of book, and then there's the actual book. We know the co the concept is not real, but the book is not real either. Sorry, Alan. Uh, in in the Yogacara class, uh, there's a course. There's a class devoted to the four yogas of uh, the contemplation. So we contemplate for about ten minutes on each of the four yogas. That's that that that's pretty that's pretty good stuff, you know. It's great. That's that's vipassana. That's pretty it's good the, stuff. Contemplating on each of those four yogas, see, you know, see where the mind goes when it's uh, when it's confronting those statements. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, that's what we're supposed to do in meditation. We're uh, we're supposed to contemplate the ab uh, absolute bodhicitta slogans. Regard yeah. all dharmas as dreams. Recognize the nature of unborn awareness and liberate even the antidote and rest in the nature of alia, the essence. Right. So just keep doing that over and over again. Yeah. And time them. Make sure that each one is exactly... <laughs> no, don't bother, you know, whatever. Yeah, but that is, that's the contemplation. That's Vipassana. If you, you know, people ask, what, what are you doing to Vipassana? That's what you do. So get busy. Right. Thank you. Anything else? So let's uh, conclude. Oh, okay. Screen share. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you, everyone. Have a great Thanks. evening and week. Thank nice you. to see you. you. Take Thank care. You. See you soon. Thank you so much. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Bye.